I see here that we also heard from another challenger who wants to support uh, the local edition, so we might do that on a coming day this week. I think that's going to be uh, a great thing to look forward to, and can we say who that is? I don't know. Can we? You, yes, you we took can. It. We can. Okay. okay. <laughs> but right. we'll be hearing about it when uh, when that challenge that's rolls it. out. We'll, we'll, we'll roll all that info okay. out when all we right. roll out Very the challenge. Good. But good. Uh, great showing of support for a, a Wednesday on the fun drive. Hey, uh, go to WJFFradio.org. Click donate now. You can see what Tim calls the wheel of progress. You can see how far Ooh. we're going. We're now a third of the way on the way towards our $50,000 goal. Thanks to all the support that we got tonight. We're going to have to get going to Trailer Talk with Sabrina Artel. We're, go- we're revisiting. Uh, this is a, an interview that Sabrina picked out for us tonight, revisiting her interview with uh, young Iris Gillingham, who's with the Sullivan County uh, Mountain Keepers and other uh, environmental activities in the area. And I heard that she's actually out at the COP26 summit that the president just left yesterday. So um, we're going to hear this interview with her with that knowledge that she is uh, representing our area at the global summit on what's going to happen with our climate future. So that's coming up on Trailer Talk uh, this is WJFF Jeffersonville. Barb, thanks so much for being here. Love the local edition. No, oh, thank you. And if you, uh, there's still time for you to call. If you want to get one more call in, it's 845-482-4141. You can always donate at WJFFradio.org. Uh, big thanks to James and Liam as well as uh, Patricio and Meg for making the local edition happen tonight. And thanks to you. Stay tuned. Trailer Talk's coming right up. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include Grizzly Bagels, small batch handmade New York style bagels in Calicoon, New York. Available for pre order, in person pickup, or shipping within New York State. Grizzlybagels.com Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina and welcome to my virtual trailer. I am speaking with Iris Gillingham from my home in Liberty, New York in the Catskills. And Iris is in Livingston Manor, New York, also in the Catskills in her town. The Willowemock River is rushing by. And outside my windows, I have the Fisk Brook. For many years now, she has been involved with environmental activism and advocacy, and she has been one of those youth voices who has been really calling out that alarm for us and raising awareness. So welcome to the show, Iris. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad we got to connect virtually. Introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Iris Fenn Gillingham. I'm 20 years old and I was born and raised in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York where my family has an off-grid farm called Wild Roots Farm. And as a kid, I grew up, uh, you know, we had a community-supported agriculture business in the CSA. So I grew up uh, learning and living with the land. Um, My family has experienced flooding that 
ended up making us have to stop farming full time for a living. One of the things that propelled me into activism and caring about some of the issues that are going on in the world was the fact that then my dad was uh, looking at these issues of fracking that were coming into our community where they were wanting to lease land to uh, do hydraulic fracturing. And that was something that as a, both as a farmer and as an you know, environmental advocate and activist, my dad was like, this does not sound right. You know, water is the basis of life and our soil and land is how we grow food and how we make a living. So we should not be contaminating that. And I grew up on land that had been in my family that uh, I'm the third generation to know the hundred acres that my family lives off of. And that is a really special relationship that I've been able to foster and I'm continuing to develop in getting to know who I am and also where I come from um, and the sustainability of being in one place and knowing where everything on your plate comes from and knowing the land um, and the seasons well enough to notice the changes that are being caused by climate change and the impacts of our, um, you know, systems and society that we're living in today. And I'm wondering as well, you described the farm that you grew up on and that you are now the third generation to have that privilege, Wild Roots Farm, being off grid. So I'm just wondering if you can describe what that means and maybe how you're growing up was a little bit different from some of your neighbors. Yes. So I grew up off grid. So we had solar panels my entire life until I went to college. I had never had a um, light switch that was elected uh, connected to the grid. And I was also, I'd always been in a place where I knew what was coming to my table because, you know, I'd seen my mom planting it and I'd helped harvest it. And I knew where the water I was drinking came from because we walked to the well to get it when I was younger. And I knew, um, I knew I had a connection to everything around me. And we have three different breeds of sheep. We have Scottish Highland cows. We're, we're a diversified farm. And so we, and we also have a large garden. And so um, that exposure to a different, a reciprocal food ways, a reciprocal lifestyle was very important in me and my childhood and growing up because where we are on the top of the mountain, we have a well that was a dug well, you know, back in the day uh, that my grandmother tasted the water out of and said, this is the water that I want my kids and grandchildren drinking. So when we had people coming into our community saying we want to frack, that was something that was a red flag because one of the biggest impacts of fracking is the contamination of the water. You know, I have to thank my grandmother for the fact that I have clean drinking water because of where she chose to um, live on top of the mountain. And so I grew up with the idea of the land as being a friend in the relationship, you know, that we're having this reciprocal uh, regenerative relationship. And And I was eight years old when this was happening. So with 
fracking and fossil fuel infrastructure, it's been something that has been a big part of my life, very significant impact and hanging over my family for more than half of my life now. And can you describe what it felt like as a little girl and as a young adult that you are now to know how many threats are being faced in the the environment, in this reciprocal relationship that we certainly rely on and need? I actually think that because of how I was raised, it was something that seemed very natural to me to protect the water and the land because they are part of our livelihood and that relationship um, of connection. So I actually wrote the first speech for the first fracking rally in the state of New York. Uh, My little brother said it at the time, and I don't actually remember what exactly the speech was. I think we wrote something like, we speak for the children all around the world, uh, and we want to have clean drinking water and clean land to play on or something like that. But my dad picked up my brother um, on his shoulders and he said the speech. And so, you know, at as however old I was as a nine-year-old, I felt like it was very important that we protect our communities. And so the first fracking rally in the state of New York had an indigenous elder and a young person calling for them to not frack in our communities. And I think that's a very significant, um, like that I, I think I've carried with me throughout all of my work is the idea that this is about our communities. It's not necessarily just about one person or one place or a certain ecosystem. It is about the idea that all of our communities are interconnected. And when something is impacted in a negative way. It has repercussions and impacts on the people, um, the surrounding waterways, on all of these areas that are tightly connected in our communities and in our society. I'm wondering if you can talk about the work that you have done about extreme energy extraction with frontline communities and the organizations that you've worked with in doing this around the country. I had the incredible honor and privilege to travel around uh, Turtle Island or North America and meet with communities that are on the front lines of climate change. And who are these communities, if you could describe some of them for us? Yeah, so these communities are all across the spectrum from, you know, frontline communities that are on the Gulf Coast that are obviously experiencing these giant storms and all of these weather impacts that we see on the news to the places in the Bakken oil field where children's schools are being built right next to hazardous waste dumps and where indigenous communities are experiencing extreme racism. And um, right there, there's the human rights issue of missing and murdered indigenous women where, you know, you have a lot of women in the community disappearing. And sometimes their bodies are found and sometimes they're not due to the the, uh, fossil fuel extraction and 
also the work that um, the workers that are working in the oil fields, but also just the kind of relationships and treatment um, within our society, the extreme racism. So it's you been worked a broad with... spectrum of impacts that I've seen, but in many ways they're all connected and all dealing with issues that are extremely close to um, home for me. Yes, and you worked with Zero Hour and Earth Guardians, correct? Yes. So I, as a young person fighting fracking in upstate New York, was always wanting to connect with other young people who were taking action. And I ended up joining the Earth Guardians National Council in, I think, 2014. And I got to work with 15 to 20 young people from across the country and be trained and do trainings for other young people. And, um, and that was an incredible experience around just how do young people use their creativity and arts to inspire change and on a local and national level. And then I helped to launch an organization called Zero Hour in 2018, where we um, did a big day of action in Washington, D.C. and a march and, um, and have been a part of all of these educational campaigns around getting to the roots of climate change and addressing um, what those roots are, which are, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and looking at these issues that are um, having a direct impact on how we respond to the idea of climate change and how communities adapt. And when we say we're wanting to create a just future, what does that mean? It means right. that we have to step out of the box. That yes, so, so when that is said, a just future, and you just said, so that means stepping out of the box. So stepping out of these structures, right? These frameworks, you mentioned uh, the systemic, racism, racial inequities, you mentioned patriarchy and capitalism. So what do you envision? And if we can connect that to the work that you're doing at the moment, you've actually, you are back home because of the pandemic. And I welcome you to share what that means, how COVID has impacted your own life and being in college, but being back home means that you now have become involved with Catskill Moundkeeper, where your father, Wes Gillingham, is the associate director. So you've come back home. You're working on very important projects right now that are connected to what you were just sharing with us. And I'm wondering if you can take us through what do you want to see, you're 20 years old, these systems to look like this just future and how this connects to our food systems, to indigenous food sovereignty, and to thinking about things differently. So with the pandemic, uh, as most college students, I was sent home, and I was actually supposed to be on an internship in Bellingham working on helping to organize the next extreme, the 10th Extreme Energy Extraction Summit um, on the Lummi Reservation. And I came home and uh, I started working for Mountain Keeper. I, I had been somewhat resistant to working 
for, you know, like my dad, the organization that my dad helped found. <laughs> um, but I had come with all of these skills and experiences as a young person working for other organizations. So I started working for them. And one of the big things that happened when the pandemic hit was our food system absolutely fell apart. And everyone saw that mm -hmm. from grocery store shelves being empty to the amount of COVID cases showing up in meatpacking plants. And, and then I think people started to actually outsource and reach out to their local farmers and say, hey, can I buy food from you? Um, because there was this issue and people were paying more attention to, um, they were at home, they could, you know, make sourdough bread or um, look into what they were eating. So I ended up organizing some webinars and getting involved in some of the food systems and agriculture work that Mountain Keeper is involved with. And they run a farmer's market in Liberty and they're involved in soil health policy and all of this incredible um, agricultural work. And one of the things that has been really important for me to recognize, and I think it's really important for people to realize, is that climate change, it's not just data. When we think of climate change, a lot of people think of data and statistics in the IPCC reports. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it is something that is front and center for communities dealing with erosion, flooding, droughts, um, you know, the loss of foodways that indigenous people are experiencing with changing environment where someplace for generations that they've been harvesting ethically and sustainably it's disappearing. And in farming communities, we have been seeing for last several decades policies going in the direction of bigger and bigger agriculture, which is feeding the climate crisis and not healthy for our soils, for our environment, for our water. Because it, on such a large scale, you have these industrial farms that are having a negative impact and these small farmers who can barely meet their bottom line and are in debt and extreme debt but because they're dealing with um, flooding or weather patterns. For example, if you have a um, hard season of growing, an industrial farm is much easier going to be able to bounce back from that. But a small farmer who is already in debt, they're not going to be able to make it all the time. And so Climate change has an extreme impact on small farms, and small farms are in some ways the answer to adapting and combating the right. climate crisis. What you're also bringing up, because of this erasure, this discarding of indigenous knowledge and actual sovereignty and control, is also very deeply connected to these systems that these industrial farms are operating from. So what you're bringing up, I mean, you're addressing localism, also this idea of sovereignty, and you mentioned indigenous sovereignty. I think it's important to recognize how that needs to be such a priority 
for so many reasons. And I know that you do work with this and even are interested in shifting the language around how we even discuss and frame ideas around food systems, right? Yes. I am not an indigenous person. So, you know, I can only speak to this topic as much as a white um, young person learning about it can. But I think that it's really important that we look at history and acknowledge that land has been taken and agricultural land has been taken from um, indigenous people. And I also want to include black farmers in that because the majority of farmers today are white. And one of the really important things to recognize is that the idea of, um, working with the land is something that has been held by communities of color for generations. So our ways of farming are not sustainable and they're very extractive. Mm -hmm. Yet what we're going to have to learn with adapting to the climate crisis is that we need to be learning from indigenous and black communities that have been working with the land for generations and have some of that knowledge and have been working hard and tirelessly despite all of that they've been put through by our government, by our society. They've been holding on to some of that knowledge and are working to reconnect with some of that knowledge. I think you're describing too is that the pandemic has made this knowledge, this information really a priority. I think everything that's been going on in the country that we've seen with the actions and people starting to listen to voices of these communities that are most impacted by these issues, uh, listening to black people and their, you know, that what they're saying about how they're treated in this country, that is also a very important aspect for us to realize in when we're talking about agriculture and farming and looking at with everything that has been going on in this country, especially with the pandemic, we must realize that if we want to move forward, it's going to have to be different than the way it was. That the idea that people talk about of, I can't wait till it goes back to normal, we do not want to go back to normal because that was a time of normalized injustice. Exactly. And that is something that is so important for us to realize as a society, even though it is really hard to swallow as a white person, we must recognize that we cannot go back to normal because normal was something that we normalized. We normalized a really unhealthy society that ignored the fact that there was extreme racism and extreme violence throughout our history. And with a just transition, and when we talk about climate change and creating green jobs and renewable jobs and looking at moving away from fossil fuels, these are all pieces that are extremely important for everyone to be a part of and at the table for these conversations. Because if we don't share the vision with everyone, then when we, if we, and we focus just on the goal, we might reach that goal, but we'll look around and realize that we left a bunch of people behind. And 
the leaders of getting us through the process of creating safer, healthier, more sustainable communities, those leaders are in the Black and Indigenous communities already. And they have the knowledge that a lot of white people, organizations, and communities have to listen to. And that's something that I think is really important for everyone to be aware that we give space to young people, to elders, to these communities that oftentimes have been left out of conversations where the conversations have a lot to do with their future. I mean, as a young person, I've experienced this all all the time. (laughs) I'm sure. Well, thank you for for sharing this information and also for acknowledging that what you want and it is also what I want is not to go back to a so-called normal, but as you stated so accurately, the reason we can't do that is that would be going back to a normalized injustice. Uh, And so you as a young person, as an environmental justice activist, you are looking forward to a new way of doing things. And I'm just wondering, before we conclude our conversation, what do what message do you have for us? It could be for the elders, the older people, it could be for the youth. But what what do you want to see? What what do you want to send us out with before we conclude? I think that something we all can do is to work to become more present and conscious with where we are, where our community is, and develop the roots and the relationships within our communities that are going to be vital when we talk about adaptation and creating resiliency in these difficult times. These, I want to say difficult and incredible times because this is an amazing opportunity that our society and especially young people in our society have been given to really create the change that we've been wanting to see for a long time that, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of the teenagers before us and the teenagers before them and, and, and this work that has been done by, um, communities for generations. So I think it's very important that we recognize that and we also are able to move forward in a way that um, rebuilds outside of the foundation that was there before because we can easily put up the same buildings that fell down um, and were cracking and we're not very stable, but how do we actually plant a garden instead, you know, like just playing with what does that look like in our communities? Um, And some of that is reconnecting to um, more regional and localized projects and food practices and reciprocal food ways that are Mm. in connection with each other, in connection with this reciprocal relationship with our environment. Um, And Mountain Keeper is doing a lot of projects that are working to make uh, here in the Catskills our communities stronger. And I think that is one of the biggest things is 
right now is a time of creating the strength that we will need in our communities to keep this work going and to be sustainable in creating change because if we burn out now then there's you know that's not going to be good for anyone so it's just how do we take care of each other how do we support each other how do we support change in the long term thank you so much iris i have to say oh i feel such hopefulness and relief and i'm quite inspired by your vision and knowing that you are 20 and uh, that gives me um, just a, a real uh, feeling of myself even being more determined to take your advice. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And for anyone who is listening, I hope they will uh, join Catsco Mountain Keepers email list and follow us on social media and follow other organizations and groups that are doing really important work um, around the country. Absolutely. So I want to thank you for that. I've been speaking with Iris Fenn Gillingham, who is back home in the Sullivan County Catskills because of the pandemic and has been working with Catskill Mountain Keeper locally, which is the area where she was born and raised and is an environmental activist and has been sharing her knowledge and her vision for our future. So thank you again, Iris. Really such a pleasure. Thank you. To find out more about Catskill Mountain Keeper, please visit their website at catskillmountainkeeper.org. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected with the local edition. He was an able swimmer, young, just went under and didn't come back up. So a life jacket would prevent that. Community news for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. We do have community activists that are working with us to find a location that might work for us. Join us right after All Things Considered. You know, I just say, don't hesitate, vaccinate. The Local Edition, weeknights at 6.30 on Radio Catskill. Public Radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. Hello, everyone. I'm Sabrina. This is Trailer Talk, and I want to invite you to this virtual edition. Please imagine that you are joining me inside the travel trailer. We are at the kitchen table, and we are having this conversation about a pop-up vaccine clinic that happened on Friday, March 12th in Sullivan County, New York. 
at the raceway. And yes, I did say raceway. That's not what we usually think about when we think about a medical event, about going to get a vaccination. But we're going to talk about why it was at the raceway and what these pop-up vaccine clinics are. They, they are community-based, and it is an initiative through the governor of New York, Cuomo, and the state to coordinate sites where these vaccines happen to provide access. And uh, I'm not going to go on and on about that because this is what we're going to talk about with my guests today. So I'm going to be speaking with Juanita Sarmiento. She was one of the organizers along with Dana Halperin, and she is the Youth Economic Group Coordinator with the Rural Migrant Ministry. And I will also be speaking with Lisa Ponce, who volunteered at this pop-up vaccine clinic, and Donna Brody, who signed up and was able to get vaccinated on Friday. So welcome, all of you, to this virtual trailer talk. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you for having us. You're so welcome. So Juanita, why don't we begin with you? Why don't you give us an introduction, why you felt it was important to have this pop-up vaccine clinic in Sullivan County? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I'm a resident of Sullivan County. I've been here almost my entire life, except for the five, six years that I went away for college. I came back and I decided that I wanted to work with the community. You know, this is the community I grew up in. This is the community that helped me become the person I am today. So it was my turn to help younger people be able to flourish and succeed the way I have. So this is the second vaccine given to us by the state at Rural Migrant Ministry, RMM. It's great because we are able to access the people that we work with at RMM, which is rural and migrant workers throughout the state. Why is it important that there was a vaccine clinic that very specifically, and this is what this initiative is for these pop-up sites, right? It's to reach people who may not have as much access and who are on the front lines. They're the most vulnerable members of our community. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, when the 1B rollout first came out, they were listed on there because they were essential workers. All essential workers were listed on um, the 1B rollout for vaccination. But since, you know, the development throughout the months, some essential workers have been taken off the list. And that includes the farm workers and the factory workers. So um, the reason that these, you know, specifically targeted vaccine clinics are so important is because even though we can't get all of the farm workers or all of the factory workers vaccinated, at least with this um, list under 1B with the comorbidities, which means if they have any health issues that can make them vulnerable, we can get those those vulnerable farm workers and factory workers vaccinated. And a lot of the time they don't have access to the internet. They don't, they don't have access to um, also the language that a lot of these vaccine clinics are running under. So what we do is, um, you know, a team of us volunteers or some of my coworkers from RMM, Rural and Migrant Ministry, have also helped me. Um, and we talk to people, you know, in the language that they speak, and they don't have to go through these internet pathways that are almost impossible at times. 
you know, they don't have to worry about providing doctor's notes and identification information and stuff that can cause fear and cause people not to want to get vaccinated. And the most important thing right now is to get everybody vaccinated. You're talking about farm workers and migrant workers and what this looked like for them a year ago, 10 months ago, 11 months ago in the county. And certainly that's representative across the country in terms of having COVID themselves being exposed and not being provided with access to proper safety and distancing. Yeah. So the migrant communities were some of the hardest hit communities, especially because of the conditions that they work in, particularly here in Sullivan County. Our migrant communities tend to work in factories, food plants, and farms where they have a lack of protective equipment. Um, Also, they're working in really tight, close quarters that easily allows for viral transmission. That's the reality that they were living in. Even the living quarters that they live in on a day-to-day basis, whether they work in these places or not, you know, a lot of the migrant community... um, lives in an area where they're in constant contact with other people and they have to be because, you know, that's how you survive. You know, that's how you get your groceries done. And um, that's how you're, you're able to have a food in your house and a roof over your head. Yes. And I want to include our, our other two guests, Lisa and Donna in this, please feel free, just jump in uh, to this conversation. You know, some of the things Juanita sharing with us, how you feel about that, your own experience with that and awareness of that. And also Donna, you know, you, you signed up, you, you went to this pop-up clinic and I'm just wondering if you can share with us what that felt like. How many people attended this and got vaccinated? We signed up 220 people. About four to nine people didn't show up for different reasons, you know, transportation, medical issues, or just because they had to cancel. But we had a wait list. We had a huge wait list. I think, um, Donna, you were one of our wait list people, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. how'd that go for you? Yeah, how'd it go, Donna? Gary and fabulous at the same time. But Juanita, thank you and the team for all the work that you guys do. When you were sharing about the migrant workers, I, I'm an alcohol and drug counselor at Catholic Charities. So I understand, you know, uh, the need for, for us to have them vaccinated. I mean, they're the, peop- they're the ones that are getting the food and this and that. And everything you said is true. They're working in horrible conditions. I just really commend you guys for all the work you did. And from being on that list, I couldn't even understand people didn't show up. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was trying to get in, trying to get in. And through my sister, Hasina, the artist, um, I'm the, I sing too, but she's the artist. And through her, we were able, because of the cancellations, there were four people, no, three people that we got in. That were can the cancellation. One guy, he got there and he just missed the injection. They just they closed down. You guys ran out. So you know, I just wanted to share a minute that I had COVID. I was diagnosed four twenty five, and how important it is to get the vaccine. You know, I don't know if I got it. They laid us off at a Catholic charity. So three weeks later, I was diagnosed, and it was horrific, horrific. I thought I was going to die because at that time, remember all on TV in New York, all over, everybody was dying. Yes. And calling my sister at 3.15 in the morning 
and crying and thinking I was going to die. And I have like PTSD from it. I still have health issues from COVID. I have post-COVID symptoms. When I heard the vaccine, I've been trying to get it. And I try to encourage my people, all people, all people, but especially Blacks, because the, the not trusting of the medical profession is extreme with my people, to be honest. And I tell everyone I can, white, Black, I don't care who, please get the vaccine. Donna, when you were finally able to get it, as you said, you'd been trying, how would you describe the feeling? There were two emotions, gratitude and gratefulness. And another one was fear. I have to be honest because, you know, I, I'm a believer in a flu shot. I have to. I'm a diabetic and asthmatic. And I had to put my head in that thinking that this is for the good of my body. This is for the good, really, to be honest, of the country, of other people, because you could have it and be spreading it. And when I Cena told me we won't, we will get down there, da, 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 I was there. Nothing could have stopped me. I was so grateful, Juanita, because Asina told me you hooked us up. And I just was so grateful. I didn't care about what this, that, and the third. I had a shot. When they gave me the shot, I had somebody take a picture. I posted it on Facebook. Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. Because people need to know this is not a joke. I lost friends, too, to this illness. I lost a friend that I uh, knew for 20, 30-something years. His, he died and his mother died the next day. I'm so, so sorry. This vaccines, it's a miracle. And we have to take advantage of it and, and take them. And it's killing, like you said, disproportionately amongst Blacks yeah. and, and elderly also. Thank you so, so much for sharing that. And I'm glad that you, you are feeling better. And I'm very sorry for your losses that you experienced. Lisa, you volunteered. So what was that experience like for you? Why did you decide to do that? Have you volunteered at any other vaccine sites? And I also mentioned before Lisa starts, can I also mention Lisa was one of the people that helped me get a lot of these farm workers and factory workers signed up. So thank you so much for that, Lisa. Tell us about, you know, everything about your day. Yes, everything about your day and that. Why don't we start with that? I mean, how did you begin that outreach? Yeah, um, so my father and my mother both worked at um, the Hudson Valley Foie Gras Farm. Whoever doesn't know about that already, um, it's a duck farm out in Ferndale. Um, and so my dad, because he's still working there, he offered to, he, has, he was off on Friday, so he offered to take in a bunch of paperwork with information about the vaccine clinic. Um, the date of the clinic, uh, approximate times for the the appointments, information on the list of um, conditions that were qualified to be able to receive the the vaccines, and I printed a bunch of stuff out. And him and my mom went around, and they went to the different sites uh, for the duck farm, and then they went around to a bunch of the restaurants in um, Liberty mm-hmm. to hand out these forms to basically let people know this vaccination clinic is happening. On Friday, this was on Wednesday. So within 24 hours, uh, Juanita and Dana uh, were trying to get a list of like 200 people together. So I was just trying to help them in any way that I could. And so basically, we that's what we did. We handed those sheets out and I guess people saw them. We handed them out in Spanish and in English and people called Juanita. I put Juanita's contact information on the forms um, and some of them actually made it 
onto the list. Um, and so they got vaccinated on Friday, uh, including my father. <laughs> including your father. Yes. <laughs> so how did that feel that your your father was able to get vaccinated? Your co-workers, your colleagues, people from your neighborhood. Describe that, please. Lisa, what did that mm-hmm. what was that experience like? So for me, so I actually I grew up in Sullivan County as well. The only time that I was away is the same as Juanita is when I went away to school. I came back working as a, I'm, I'm a civil engineer right now. And so I feel like I've kind of gotten to a point where I've made it. I've, I have a good job and I feel like I owe it to my community, to people like my father who work so hard to put their kids through school like myself. And I mean, this is just the start of it, I think, um, getting involved with the community in this way and helping them get vaccines, I think is, is just one small project, but I'm hoping to do more. But I mean, it feels really good to see um, how happy these people are. I mean, like uh, a friend of ours too was at the clinic and I was able to get her on the list last minute. And she was so happy because she was having issues at other clinics. She didn't have uh, documentation from her doctor and she was having issues with getting an appointment. She couldn't afford it. So um, it was a big mess. And eventually we were able to get her on this list and she was able to get vaccinated. Um, and that put her worries aside because now that, you know, she's going to be vaccinated, she doesn't have to worry about getting sick and, and um, having that fear. So, I mean, it feels great. I think Juanita a lot because um, <laughs> she was the primary organizer. And Lisa, could you describe the day a little bit? I, I believe it was from 10 to 4, the vaccine clinic like what was that like and again this backdrop was the raceway it's like a racetrack it's a raceway (laughs) in Sullivan County New York I ended up showing up around I think it was around one o'clock as soon as I showed up uh they put me right to work they were putting papers on clipboards having people fill out their information for the vaccines there were a few Spanish speakers so they had me translating so basically I would help Mm -hmm. them fill out their paperwork And then I would go in with them to see the nurses to get their vaccines done and translate for the nurses. And then we would lead the people into a room where they would sit for 15 minutes and make sure that they didn't feel sick. That was pretty much the the process. And there was a point where the whole group of people that was there was all farm workers. So between myself, Juanita, and a few other people who were there translating. We were working pretty quickly to try to get people through as fast as we could. What did you learn from this pop-up vaccine clinic? Is there another one coming up? What did you learn from the people that did attend and their their responses and the needs? I was personally called by Garnett Health today. They have their weekly vaccine clinic on Thursdays over at the hospital in Harris. And um, they're like, we have 50 spots this week that we can give you. So, you know, after this, I think I might uh, commingle with Lisa to see if we can just get a- another handful of factory and farm workers signed up for this Thursday. No, I think the vaccine clinics that I've been to, everyone's doing such a great job, whether it's a state or it's county workers. Um, nurses have been, you know, so kind and so emotionally responsive to um, the patients that they've been receiving. I know that when I went about almost three weeks ago, I'm getting my my second dose on Saturday. The nurses were so amazing. There's such a good flow to it. I'm really excited for the 
eligibilities to increase, you know, like college aged youth, like um, young people in high schools that, you know, the the teachers and the high schoolers want to go back to work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, young people need to be able to get vaccinated. I can't wait for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That's very important. Do you feel that this model of the pop-up clinic and focusing on specific community members should continue? Yes, absolutely. That was something I sat down with uh, the nurses while I was there um, working on the clinic this past Friday. And the nurses agreed with me. They're like, we need to do something like this, but like for more direct populations, for like very specific populations. Let's go to the to the elderly communities and vaccinate everybody in the elderly communities. Let's go to each one of the factories and each one of the farms and have a pop out right outside of their facilities so that they can all get vaccinated. And it's easier. And, you know, we don't have to worry about the lack of access to internet. We don't have to worry about the lack of access to, you know, translated materials. You know, a lot of older people don't have internet because they don't want it. So Mm -hmm. it's not fair. Really great point. And what would it take to make that happen? What you're describing to really go right to a factory, right to a farm, right to a place where older people reside, etc. You know, right out into the community, maybe right to a grocery store parking lot. Yeah, you know, just like any other relationship, it requires good communication. Um, We need communication between the governor's office and the local public health office. We need communication with each of the CEOs, owners, bosses, farmers that employ farm workers and factory workers and and whoever else. And also, you know, the landlords that house the elderly housing. Direct Mm -hmm. communication is the way that we're going to get everybody vaccinated. Donna, you already described your own experience having COVID, being very sick, losing people you love, and the relief that you felt now that you have been vaccinated. You're in that process. And I'm wondering, Lisa, if you may share, what has this year, we're just at the year marker of living with a global pandemic, and the losses have been tremendous in this country and around the world? I think first and foremost, um, I think we have to show a lot of gratitude because there are so many countries, you know, including my family in Mexico, there's a lot of people all over the world who do not have access and will not have access to the vaccine for a very long time. And I think that it's a blessing that I was even able to get it this past weekend because I didn't Mm -hmm. expect to. I thought I was going to go volunteer and that was it. And then they said, Nope. All volunteers can get vaccinated. Go get your vaccine. We want you to get vaccinated. So, I mean, for them to offer that to me too, I was like, wow, that's, that's kindness right there because they were offering something to me that I didn't feel like I deserved or was qualified for it. There's other people who, who need it more, but they were like, nope, you're here, you're volunteering, you're exposed. So you should, you should get vaccinated. That's my take on it. I I think that there's just a, a lot to be grateful for. Um, just because of the fact that we have access here. And by May 1st now, everyone hopefully will have access. So uh, thank you, Lisa. Juanita. It's been a year, you know, <laughs> where it's literally the 13th was exactly a year since the schools closed. I marked it on my calendar and I haven't taken that page off the calendar down because I'm like, I have to remember this, like the exact date of when things started, you know, getting difficult. Um, 
before the vaccine clinics, I was doing, you know, hands. I was on the ground, on the ground, you know, making sure that the factories and farm workers had personal protective equipment, making sure that people that didn't qualify for the stimulus checks were able to get some kind of funding to be able to buy at least some groceries and keep their family alive during this time. Even just a couple of weeks without work can really affect a family. And also, you know, I've had a few family members that have been in the hospital because of COVID. My uncle is just recently got out. He was sent to rehab for about a week. And then now he's finally at home. But, you know, you can see all the muscle mass that he lost during his battle with COVID. And are you able to share with us your experience with the vaccination itself? Yeah. So I think um, when I got it, it went really well. The only thing that I experienced was like a lot of drowsiness. I did have like a little bit of a an allergic reaction like on my face, but I'm allergic to everything. So they said that that was expected. You know, when you're allergic to everything, um, be prepared to experience a little bit of allergies. So I took a Benadryl and I was okay after that. Donna, anything else you want to share about that? Well, um, you know, again, thank you, Juanita. Thank you for all the work the team has done to get vaccinations here. And um, I'm just, you know, I am very grateful because like I said, there was a time I thought I was going to die with this, you know, um, had it not been for a great doctor that did a CAT scan on me. Because remember back in those days, I feel like they've been, I feel like that was a century ago, but back in those days, the test, there was no testing. We couldn't get tested. It was terrible. And like to see how far science has come is just like amazing, man. And Dr. Fauci is my hero. I'm, that's my hero. So I follow his lead, you know, um, and I'm just grateful to be alive. My sister used to meet down the road. I want to say one thing. I felt the same uh, hysteria that we faced years ago with HIV, okay? That, oh my God, HIV, we don't know how to get it, you know? And it was secretive and it was horrible. I felt dirty and shamed that I had it. I got to say that because you feel when you have it, you felt, I felt like I can't let nobody know because it's like you're a pariah. So I was here in a senior place and I had to be very careful, very careful, which I was at work. So I never understood how I caught it. But again, you know, through science, we have a vaccine now. And there's really no excuse, man, to not get it. We need to vaccinate. I just want to ask if there's anything else you want to say before we conclude that you may have left out or you just want to kind of take our listeners out with. I do have something to say. Um, I don't. Sorry, Lisa, I know I've talked a lot throughout this whole interview, but I think this is just so important. Um, The vaccine, it's a bit of a misunderstanding about the speed at which the vaccines came out, right? What I want the listeners to understand is that while these vaccines did come out a lot faster than other vaccines, you have to understand that during this time of quarantine, when the entire world was shut down, the only labs that were working, and I know this because I have friends and family that work in labs, the only labs that were working were the COVID-19 vaccine laboratories. And it wasn't that the vaccines were rushed is because there was nothing blocking the timeline 
for the studies to happen on a normal basis when all the labs are open and there's hundreds of studies going on on different things. There's always going to be a roadblock because other studies are being done on a hundred different, a million different other things. But for this, during the lockdown, during the quarantines, the only studies being done were those of the vaccines. And that's why it was such a foolproof and smooth transition from the in initial point to the studies and now to the actual vaccination clinics. Lisa? Um, yeah, so I have just two things that I quickly want to share. The first thing is, I guess, um, just ex I think people should express more gratitude and thank all of our essential workers, all of our nurses, our doctors, because not only physically have they endured so much, but mentally they have endured extreme conditions that I don't think anyone has ever endured in probably history, um, except for maybe when there were other pandemics. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is, um, I don't, I don't know if this is something that other people agree with, but, um, I know we're all going to want to travel after we get our vaccines, but I think people should be conscious and cognizant of the fact that there's a lot of developing countries that probably will not have their vaccines yet. And just because you are vaccinated doesn't mean that you can't spread the disease. So please be cognizant of that and don't just go travel to these countries that haven't been vaccinated because there's a possibility that we might be spreading the virus. And so I, I just think, you know, knowing that my family's in a place where people like to travel and they aren't vaccinated yet, and I don't know when they will be, I wouldn't want other people to be going through that either. So um, that's just my take. Travel somewhere where you know that people have been vaccinated and you know they're protected and safe. Okay, good one. Thank yeah, you. thank you so much. I have had the pleasure to be speaking with Lisa Ponce, who's a civil engineer, uh, Juanita Sarmiento, who was one of the organizers for the pop-up vaccine clinic at the Raceway, and is the Youth Economic Group Coordinator with the Rural Migrant Ministry, and Donna Brody, who is an alcohol and drug counselor at the Catholic Charities. And mm -hmm. we've been having this conversation in Sullivan County, New York. We all live here. And I want to thank you for taking your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. In the fall, we look back on the past year and take stock. And in another year where the news never stopped, you relied on this station to keep up. Radio Catskill keeps you in the know with reliable information. When the news moves fast, you can't miss a minute. Now, please take two minutes to support the shows, the hosts, the station you rely on. Go to WJFFradio.org and help us end our fall favorites fun drive. Thanks. From river to river, mountain to mountain, this is Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.
on air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Radio Catskill. Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at g